fitting that we go right from our reciting of the Nicene Creed, the declaration from the early days of the church, right into our reading in Acts chapter 4 as we continue to see those who have gone before us, the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Brothers and sisters, let us pay careful attention now to the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. If you have the Pew Bible, that does begin at the very bottom of page 911 and then continues on to page 912. Hear God's Word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may we be those who hear your word and believe just like these early Christians. May your word take root deep into our hearts. May it bear fruit for the sake of your name and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. What is in a name? What is the purpose or the significance of a name? You may have a name that was passed down from generations ago, or there might be an interesting story about why your parents gave you the name that they did. It might be something you enjoy telling, or it might be something that annoys you. <laughs> Could go both ways. We give significant names to our children. We name our pets. Some of us name our vehicles. Not going to call anybody out. But names do carry significance. They tell a mini story. Who we are, maybe. Where we're from. What we're about. This book that we're in has a name. Has a title. Most English translations are... It's called the Acts of the Apostles. We've talked about this already. We talked about this as we kicked off the series. That maybe more accurately, this could be titled the Acts of the Triune God. We could argue that we see the Triune God acting and then people responding. Broadly, the question is, how do people respond to the good news of Jesus? And maybe more narrowly, how do people respond to the name of Jesus? This is a key theme throughout Acts. I want us to walk through our passage here in Acts 4 today with kind of this overarching emphasis. We also need to pay attention to our context. How did we get here? How did we get to where we're at in chapter 4? So I want to begin by giving a brief overview of some of the things we've seen in the first three chapters. Then we're going to walk through chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And then finally, we're going to look at a contemporary example that will help us to see these truths and how they still apply to us today in our contemporary context, in our current historical and cultural moment. So in chapters 1 to 3, we've seen Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's promised the coming of the Holy Spirit who would empower the apostles to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This began then on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends in tongues of fire. He fills those who begin speaking in these foreign languages, leading to amazement and astonishment from those who are gathered around, even leading some people to accuse them of being drunk. This is the first act of God that elicits a response that needs to be responded to. Peter responds to the false response of them being drunk by preaching the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, explaining that indeed they are not drunk, but the last days have now come upon us in Jesus, whom, as he begins to remind them, the men of Israel had killed. And we're going to continue to see that emphasis. Although they have killed him, he has been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of God, and he has poured out all that they are seeing. He has poured out his spirit, who is the promised gift for all of those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. This is this groundbreaking, earth-shattering message that Peter preaches. It's so groundbreaking that about 3,000 people believe that day, and the church begins to grow. And the believers 
begin to gather together regularly. And God keeps adding to their number, we're told, day by day. But now the first miracle, and we talk about the tongues being a miracle, but the first miracle happens that we see this first outward miracle involving this healing of this layman. It happens and it elicits a response from the religious teachers to which the disciples respond. And so we have this back and forth that will be a pretty major theme throughout Acts. Now there's certainly some parallels with Jesus' teaching and his miracles in the Gospels, but now there's this clear mission and calling for the church. We start to see here in chapters 3 and 4, the first clear opposition and the first persecution to the name and to the mission of Jesus. That's really important for us to note here. In chapter 3, the lame beggar was healed at the entrance of the temple, and then he enters the temple with Peter walking and leaping and praising God with Peter and John. Peter addresses the men of Israel again, and he reminds them of their part in killing Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. He says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his names, we start to see this emphasis here of Jesus' name, his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He calls them to repentance again in verse 19. He reminds them that Jesus is the prophet that Moses said God would raise up and that they must listen to him or be destroyed from the people. That's in verses 21 to 23. And then the promise of Abraham that they would be blessed if they believe in the risen Christ and turn from their wickedness. Things are getting really tense here. And this prompts the showdown that we are about to see in chapter 4. So here's the argument that I think is being made in this passage. There are two parts to this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's the argument that I think we get in this passage. Jesus is the only resurrected Savior. It's the first part. Jesus is the only resurrected Savior. And we must speak of all that he is and does, no matter the consequences. We must speak of all that he is and does, no matter the consequences. Again, we'll see this as we walk through this first section of chapter 4. And then we'll consider a contemporary example of how this plays out. Now, in verses 1 through 4, the heavy hitters show up. Look at verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, Luke mentions the same people as having been present at Jesus' betrayal in Luke 22. When Judas shows up with the chief priests, the officers of the temple, which is the same here as the captain of the temple, and the elders, which we see down in verse 5. These are the familiar antagonists. We also see here the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you might remember, Luke mentions them in chapter 20, and the, you know, the cute little, why were they sad? 
they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay. Chapter 20, if you haven't heard that before. Okay. Now you have. That's how you remember that they were sad, the Sadducees. Okay. They denied the resurrection. They're the ones who came upon Jesus in Luke 20 and tried to trap him by asking him the question about the woman whose husband died, and then she married six of the brothers, and they all died, and they asked Jesus, in the resurrection, whose will she be? Well, they didn't even believe in the resurrection, okay? These, these guys are the punks who come and, like, ask the stupid question that they, they know, like, they're not going to get the answer. They're just trying to trap him, right? That's these guys. They're the wealthy and the ruling class. They are those who were politically and religiously synergized. They mixed their politics and their religion. They were the ones who held political power, and they were trying to exert their political power through the religious system. These are not the good dudes here. John Sott says of the Sadducees, they saw the apostles as both agitators and heretics, both disturbers of the peace and enemies of the truth. The irony is, that was them, right? These are the agitators. These are the deniers of the truth, enemies of the truth. They tried to trap Jesus, and now they want to trap his followers as well. We see here in verse 2 that they are greatly annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Again, the very thing that they denied. Were they annoyed just because a lame man was healed and that people are excited about it? No. They're annoyed now because there's a new sheriff in town. And the crazy thing is that he's not even physically present. There's a new movement. And this new movement is posing a serious threat to the establishment. New ideas are always dangerous for someone. Maybe they're dangerous for the people who are taking on these new ideas, or they're dangerous for the people who hold the new idea, or the old ideas. Any new ism causes people to straighten up and to take notice. What is this new thing? What is this new idea that people are latching onto? Here, the thing that causes people to straighten up and take notice is who is this Jesus? And how is he a threat to the social and religious order? There are two fundamentally opposing worldviews that come crashing together here in Acts chapter 4. And the only thing that the Sadducees can try to do is to shut them down, to shut them up, and exert their power by having them arrested, which they do in verse 3. But notice then Luke's comment in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. It's as if Luke zooms out here and gives us the big picture of what is going on. This didn't just suddenly happen right here during the showdown at Solomon's portico. All these people weren't suddenly converted here. This had been happening. This had been going on in the background for these however many days between... Pentecost and here, the roots of the gospel were taking hold and they were spreading as more and more people heard the good news about Jesus and believed in him. At the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon in chapter two, 
we're told that 3,000 souls were added to the church. Again, we don't know how long it's been, how many days have passed, but the end of chapter 2 says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So now we're told that it's up to 5,000. It says here that the number of men came to about 5,000. Most commentators think that this is probably upwards of maybe 10,000 people, including women and children. This is no small movement. You get 10,000 people together believing some new thing, that's going to shake things up, right? If it was like 50 people, maybe 100 people, you'd be like, okay, here's this crazy cult. All of a sudden, you have 10,000 people in this city who are saying, there's a new sheriff in town, and people start to take notice. Either way, the point here, however many people there were and how this all played out, the point is that in the midst of increasing persecution, the Lord is growing his church. One commentator says, a pattern begins here that is repeated in Acts. Persecution cannot stop the kingdom, but often goes hand in hand with its growth. Persecution cannot stop the kingdom, but often goes hand in hand with its growth. I was able to see this firsthand during our time living and ministering in China. How persecution causes the church to grow, how God works through his people in the midst of opposition. We'll be talking a little bit more about that a little later. But let's keep working our way through this text. Luke picks back up the next day in verse 5, and we see that the same authorities show up, along with Annas and Caiaphas, who were both present at Jesus' trial. So this scene would have been strangely familiar to Peter and John. And then the questions start to come. Look at verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? What power and name? Now, Peter doesn't address the power part in his answer, but I think Luke does in the beginning of verse 8. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember Acts 1.8, Jesus promises his promise to his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the power part of the answer to this question. During his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 12, Jesus prepared his disciples for circumstances just like this. He said, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, sound familiar? Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit, the power of God, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We see the direct fulfillment right the direct example of jesus saying this is going to happen don't be afraid in that day the holy spirit is going to teach you he's going to tell you what you should say and that's what we see happening here peter wasn't reading from some script he didn't pull out a note card and say oh yeah jesus said when the authorities arrest me i should just read this card to them and say these things right this wasn't him memorizing some canned response He simply told them that this man had been healed 
by Jesus, while reminding them again of their guilt in crucifying and rejecting the Messiah. Peter knew his Bible well. He quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, about the stone that the builders rejected. And he gives one of the most clear and probably well-known descriptions of the exclusivity of Jesus in verse 12. Chris read earlier from Psalm 45 about the exclusivity of Yahweh, not just for the people of Israel, but for the whole earth. The Lord said, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. When people say, how can there be only one way to God? How can you say that? You can say, I didn't say it, right? God said it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We're not making this stuff up. We're not trying to be narrow-minded and say, We've got it all figured out and everybody else is just a bunch of idiots. God said it. This should be no shock then coming from Peter, verse 12, this claim that the God who alone is God, who sent his only son so that we might believe in him and have eternal life. It's no shock that his name is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And yet that very claim is a threat to every religion and to every ism known to man. Again, if people accuse us of being narrow as Christians, we must say, yes, of course we are. There is one God. There is one mediator, only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He said it, right? Not us. We're not making this stuff up. He is the one who said it. This is the testimony of Scripture from which we must not depart. Just look at the train wreck of liberal denominations who have departed from the truth of Scripture and from the exclusivity of Jesus, the only resurrected Savior. We open things up to say, it's all the same, right? Just be- You believe what you believe. Don't, don't believe what the Bible says. It's just examples, good stories. And we see how we've gotten to this place that we're in, right? This complete confusion. All roads leading to God or all roads leading to heaven is the single greatest lie from the pit of hell that has caused more confusion in our day, I think, than anything else. Don't be duped by that. I've been saying some challenging things here. Things that we must believe as Christians. Things that we must be willing to communicate to those around us. But I want to caution us here. The second part of my argument from this text is that we must speak of all that Jesus is and does no matter the consequences. I believe that 100%. But we can't separate what we say from how we say it. If we think the boldness here of Peter and John that we see in verse 13, if this is an excuse to be 
brash, or obnoxious, then think again. Their boldness, which could also be translated as confidence, is shocking to the religious leaders for two reasons. First, because it says they were uneducated common men. The Greek word here for common is idiotes. Don't think I need to translate that one for you. How is it then that Peter and John, these idiots in the eyes of the religious leaders, how are they speaking about in this way about Jesus? Making these claims about who he is. How are they quoting Old Testament scriptures if they are not religiously trained? Well, the answer to this is good news for every one of you who does not have a theology degree. You don't need to be a professional minister to talk to people about Jesus. What was the key for Peter and John? The second thing that shocked the religious leaders. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. I feel like we could just stop here and go home, right? Like mic drop. They had been with Jesus, like end of the story. Is this the key for us? Is this what people recognize when they're with us? When they hear us speak about our faith? And when you spend time with someone, you start to talk like that person and maybe think like that person and you start to act like that person, don't you? We've all probably seen this in our lives to some degree. If you're married, you, go, you marry into a new family and you might start to adopt some of the things in that family. Or you go into this other family and you realize how much you're like your own family, right? And the way you talk and think and act. Or you go to, maybe you go off to college, you go to some new school and you're around a new group of people and you start to, to think like them and act like them and say different things that they might be saying. We're all imitators to some degree, aren't we? We all acknowledge that. The question is, who are we going to imitate? And I mean, the desired answer, right? The Sunday school answer, it's obvious, right? We should imitate Jesus. But how are we going to get there? To the point where people recognize that we have been with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. This is the commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. They spent time with Jesus. Obviously, during his three years of his earthly ministry, they were with him often. They were his friends. 
They loved one another. But in John 14 to 17, the whole point is about how Jesus is going to go away and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He prays for them and he prays for us in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity and our love for one another is the way that the world is going to recognize that we have been with Jesus and believe that he has sent us. This is how they're going to hear us out when we share the good news of the gospel. That's what's happening here in Acts 4. And it is an undeniably powerful element of the witness that is being given. Now it helps in verse 14 that the healed man is standing there beside them. So what are they going to say in opposition? They can't deny that the miracle has happened. So what they do here is they actually dismiss Peter and John and the healed man. And they begin to plot and scheme. And here's what they come up with in verse 17. It says, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let them warn them, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Notice the power and the threat of the name of Jesus. So then they do just what they have planned in verse 18. Now we come to the climax of this tension. How are Peter and John going to respond? They know that their lives are probably still at risk. Will these religious authorities hand them over to the Romans to have them crucified just like they did their Lord? Now, clearly, they're not concerned with saving their own necks, which we see in their reply. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. They answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John are willing to speak of all that they have seen and heard, of all that Jesus is and does, no matter the consequences. They are compelled. They are not able to not speak, as it literally says, come what may. They are not able to not speak about Jesus. So the council gives them a few more empty threats and then sends them on their way. Notice the second half of verse 21. I love this. Finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. God was getting the glory here, as he should for all that he had done through Peter and John for this lame man. This wasn't about Peter and John and all they were accomplishing for the Lord. Just like it's not about us. We're not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. We're not called to live our lives for our own names and for our own glory, but for his. We don't seek to speak and to minister to others in our own strength, but in the power 
of the Holy Spirit. And we don't obey the command to love one another and live sacrificially in the face of persecution so that others will say great things about us, but so that they will glorify God. I said in the beginning that we would look at a contemporary example that will help us to see how these truths still apply to us today in our own historical and cultural moment. Last night, I sent an email out uh, to those of you who are on our email list with three things, uh, three links. If you did not get that email and you would like these things, I can uh, send that to you if you give me your email address. Uh, but just a recap of what those things were. And if you didn't yet get a chance to read that, I would encourage you to, uh, to go back and, and spend some time. But the first thing is an article that appeared recently in PCA's, the PCA's By Faith magazine. It was an article about how uh, several PCA pastors have been interacting with the writings of Wang Yi. Uh, Wang Yi is a Chinese pastor who is currently serving a nine-year prison sentence for preaching the gospel and being a Christian. Uh, he wrote a, there's a book um, called Faithful Disobedience that is about uh, his, his life and the things that he has been, uh, has been doing. Actually, interestingly, he is a Presbyterian pastor. In, he was in Chengdu, China. Uh, they created their own presbytery there. And so there's a lot of connections with the PCA and that presbytery. Um, I did not know him personally, but I knew some people who had served with him. So followed all of this very closely when these things unfolded in, in 2018 and 2019. Uh, the second link was to a letter, an open letter that Wang Yi wrote to the Chinese Communist Party, which was released after his arrest. Uh, you can access that and read that. And then the, the other thing was a, a short clip, about a three and a half minute clip of a sermon that he preached, uh, calling out the, the leaders of the government uh, to faith in Christ. And the, the letter that he wrote um, anticipating his arrest that was released, was called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. At the end of that letter, there's an appendix that is, the title of the, the section is, What Constitutes Faithful Disobedience? In light of what Peter and John were doing, in light of us thinking about what does it look like to, to faithfully disobey, listen to how Wang Yi describes this. He says, I firmly believe that the Bible has not given any branch of any government the authority to run the church or to interfere with the faith of Christians. Therefore, the Bible demands that I, through peaceable means, in meek resistance and active forbearance, filled with joy, resist all administrative policies and legal measures that oppress the church and interfere with the faith of Christians. I firmly believe this is a spiritual act of disobedience. In modern authoritarian regimes that, that persecute the church and oppose the gospel, spiritual disobedience is an inevitable part of the gospel movement. I firmly believe that spiritual disobedience is an act of the last times. It is a witness to God's eternal kingdom in the temporal kingdom of sin and evil. Disobedient Christians follow the example of the crucified Christ by walking the path of the cross. Peaceful disobedience is the way in which we love the world as well as the way in which we avoid becoming part of the world. I firmly believe that in carrying out spiritual disobedience, the Bible demands me to rely on the grace and resurrection power of Christ that I must respect and not overstep two boundaries. This is very important here, these two boundaries that he talks about. 
The first boundary is that of the heart. Love toward the soul and not hatred toward the body is the motivation of spiritual disobedience. Transformation of the soul and not the changing of circumstances is the aim of spiritual disobedience. At any time, if external oppression and violence rob me of inner peace and endurance so that my heart begins to breed hatred and bitterness toward those who persecute the church and abuse Christians, then spiritual disobedience fails at that point. Do you hear what he's saying here? If our disobedience leads us to a point of hatred for those who are persecuting us, bitterness towards those who oppose the message of Christ, instead of love for our enemies that Jesus calls us to, then our spiritual disobedience falls apart. The second boundary, the first was the heart, the second is behavior. The gospel demands that disobedience of faith must be nonviolent. The mystery of the gospel lies in actively suffering, even being willing to endure unrighteous punishment as a substitute for physical resistance. Peaceful disobedience is the result of love and forgiveness. The cross means being willing to suffer when one does not have to suffer. For Christ had limitless ability to fight back, yet he endured all of the humility and hurt. The way that Christ resisted the world that resisted him was by extending an olive branch of peace on the cross to the world that crucified him. This is still Wang Yi here. This is his last paragraph. I firmly believe that Christ has called me to carry out this faithful disobedience through a life of service under this regime that oppresses the gospel and persecutes the church. This is the means by which I preach the gospel, and it is the mystery of the gospel which I preach. Signed, the Lord's servant, Wang Yi. Does Wang Yi, four years into his nine-year prison sentence, still believe that Jesus is the only resurrected Savior and that he must speak of all that he is and does, no matter the consequences? By God's grace, I pray that he still does and that the Lord is using his suffering mightily in face of, no doubt, the re-education, the brainwashing that is being imposed upon him. I pray that the Lord uses that to turn his captors from darkness to light. But what about us? Do we, though now free from physical chains, do we believe that Jesus is the only resurrected Savior and that we must speak of all that he is and does no matter what the consequences may be? This past week, uh, Donovan and I were in Appleton with about 70 other men, pastors, uh, servants, leaders in, in churches around the area. We had the privilege of hearing from Kent Hughes. Some of you might know uh, who Kent Hughes is. He's written several books. We went through uh, the Disciplines of a Godly Man book in our men's time a few years back. He's got a whole commentary series uh, from Crossway, a uh, very well-known author and pastor. He pastored at... Um, college church in Wheaton for a, a very long time, around 30 years. Uh, I got to t meet him at the end of our time, just as we were leaving and just chatted very briefly. And he said, 
I never thought I would see a day in this country where Christians wouldn't not just be opposed, but where Christians would publicly be referred to as evil. He was just saying, it's hard to believe like what he's, he's 81. It's hard to believe what he's seen in his lifetime. And he's not saying that he's shocked that there's opposition to the gospel, but that it's gotten to the point where Christians are just viewed as, as outright evil. We have, we have no idea what the future holds. And we can't, you know, sit here and say like, well, how bad is it going to get? And, and how, you know, is it going to, is it going to get better? We don't, we don't live our lives. We don't live and, and witness based on, on that, right? We don't, we don't know those things. In the, the one article, the, the PCA magazine article that I, I sent to you, Kevin Smith, who's a, a PCA pastor I've gotten to know a little bit. Uh, he, this is what he said regarding this and his interaction with with Wang Yi's writings. He said, I'm seeking to prepare my people for suffering in the name of Jesus and his kingdom and counting it joy to do so. But even if it doesn't come, it's really important. Even if it doesn't come, I want my people to love Jesus like the Chinese house churches anyway. He continues on. He says, I want to know this Jesus, but I want my people to know this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the goal here, right? That's what we're called to, to know Jesus, to be in a position where people might say, oh, you've been with Jesus. You talk like him. You think like him. You act like him. When they slander us, when they accuse us of all kinds of different things, may they see our love for him, our love for one another. And may, may, may their mouths be stopped. And may they repent and turn to Christ. If you watch Wang Yi's sermon clip that I sent, you might, it might be a little shocking. I mean, he's talking very loudly and excitedly, calling President Xi Jinping to repent of his sins. We can do that, right? We can do that boldly. I could stand up here and say, President Joe Biden, if you're listening, which of course he's not, but if you're listening, Turn from your sins. I was actually reading in, I think it was in uh, Kent Hughes' ex commentary. He told the story of uh, President Andrew Jackson. He was uh, traveling through Illinois and he, he stopped to, at a church to worship that Sunday. And the people said, um, someone came up to him and said, the president's here. You have to be very careful uh, what you're going to say. And apparently in his sermon, he said, if, if Andrew Jackson does not repent of his sins, he's going to hell. And the president came up to him afterwards and said something like, you know, if I had like a hundred people as bold as you, like I could whip all the enemies or whatever, right? We're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed to call people out for their sins, but we don't do it just to be obnoxious, right? Just to say, well, I'm bold for Jesus. People see through that, right? What they really see and what they really respond to is, have you been with Jesus? Do you suffer like him? Do you relate to him in his suffering? I think that's something we need to ask ourselves as we prepare to come to this table. We often frame our approach to the Lord's Supper in, in different ways. 
kind of maybe depending on the scripture text or just depending on different things going on. One of the things maybe I don't emphasize enough is that coming to this table is an act of identifying with Christ in his suffering. The, the last supper, when Jesus was with the disciples in the upper room, the whole emphasis, the whole, the whole mood, right, of, of that day was kind of down, right, kind of sad. Like Jesus is telling us he's about to go to the cross, and we don't know what that's going to mean for us. We don't know what that's going to mean for our future. Are, are we going to suffer with him in that way? Right, Peter and John here in Acts 4, they don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to be... Are they going to be handed over to their death? Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table. And the apostles with him, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So there's this present reality, right? of the suffering that's coming upon Jesus, of their suffering, but there's this future glory that Jesus points to and reminds them of. We always need to keep those things in balance, right? The, the already, the present, and the not yet, the future glory. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes he took the bread when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood but behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It says they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you have heard some challenging things. Jesus is the only way to God. There's, there's no other name by which you can be saved. And if you are going to be a Christian, the call is to suffer, right? It's to take up your cross. It's to follow Jesus. It's to face opposition in this world. This isn't just something we do flippantly. We don't just pray some sinner's prayer and say, yay, everything's, God's going to fix my life and everything's going to be great. The reality is, is your life is probably going to get harder when you walk with Jesus. But it's going to be infinitely better. God is going to give you joy and peace that this world cannot offer. He's going to give you hope beyond this life. If you don't have that hope yet, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you. I would, I would love to talk to you after the service or Anyone who, who you know here would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. One of the things we do do here and, and practice at, at Livingstone is this, that this table is reserved only for those who are followers of Jesus, only for those who trust in him for their salvation. You don't have to be a member at Livingstone. You don't have to be Presbyterian. 
We ask that you would be someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church, who identifies with Christ in his suffering, who has been baptized and professed the name of Christ. If that's, if that's you, uh, you are welcome to come to this table. Again, if that's not yet you, we ask that you would remain in your seat, and we would love to talk more with you about that.